Those interested in past history are those interested in the future. At least, some people say so. I, for one, believe that's a true statement. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! About a week ago, I finished reading a recently released book. Just a few months ago, it was released. The book is titled The God Squad. The born-again San Francisco Giants of 1978. As a Christian, as a person who was once called a member of the God Squad, though not the one of 1978, as a former San Francisco Giant, and as a baseball fan, I found this book very interesting, very intriguing, and very thought-provoking. The book was sent to me by its author, Matt Seeger. He and former San Francisco Giant, as well as Houston Astro pitcher, Bob Nepper, join me in the bullpen. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Good to see you, Matt. Same here. (laughs) Hey, Bob. So basically, my thought is I'm going to alternate back and forth, let the listeners know that that's what I'm going to do. But as we mentioned before we started recording, you guys are going to interact as you see fit. So I'm going to begin with you, Matt. But first, I want to say a couple of things before I start with my first question. The end of your book had a chapter on acknowledgments, which is true in many books. But in that, you wrote this. I hope this book in some ways helps to explain to each side, and side is in quotation marks, of the controversy where the other side was coming from. And in reading your book, I believe you did that, and you did it very, very well. It is a very fair and a very respectful book to each, quote-unquote, side. And I was impressed by the research. It was thorough. At the end of each chapter, as you're citing your sources, I mean, you, you were very thorough, very thoughtful in this. And I think it really stands out by the title of chapter 14, and we'll talk about this man in the interview, but the title of the chapter is Understanding Lowell Cone. It's not denouncing him, refuting him. It's not even debating him. It's understanding him. And I think that says a lot about how you tried to be respectful and fair throughout this whole book. So that leads Thank me you. that leads me to my first question. I know it came out in 2023. I believe it was November of 2023. I saw... Yeah. Yeah, I saw that the the updated interviews you did took place basically in the summer of 2023. 45 mm-hmm. years after basically the impetus of this book, 1978. So why yeah. did you write this book? Why 45 years later did you write this book? Okay, uh, good question, Mark. Uh, let me take you back about 40 years. I was a young man around 30 years old. My wife and I were living in South San Francisco, and uh, a guy who would uh, soon become my brother-in-law named Drew Petiti 
He was dating my wife's sister at the time. And he and his brother Keith had started a chapter of Fellowship of Christian Athletes at their high school in South San Francisco. Um, and uh, now Drew had gone off to college, to Bible college, but his brother Keith continued the chapter of the FCA, and they would have meetings in uh, their parents' home uh, in South San Francisco, and they would bring in speakers. Uh, and one day, uh, Keith told me that Gary Lavelle was going to be the speaker, inviting me over to their house. So I went to the meeting. It was kind of a small gathering. Gary gave a good talk. And uh, afterwards, uh, since I'm a journalist, I asked Gary, could I interview him for an article to appear in the FCA magazine? And uh, Gary had me at his home in Foster City. We did the interview. I got the uh, article published. That was in uh, the summer of uh, 1983. And at the time, I was following the Giants and reading the Chronicle and Examiner and reading the columns by Glenn Dickey and Lowell Cohn, uh, basically uh, uh, either denouncing in Glenn Dickey's case or satirizing in Lowell Cohn's case the born-again giants. And it kind of irked me <laughs> that that was happening. And I, I said to Gary, you know, this would be a good topic for a book. And Gary agreed, and we met again in, in his home in Foster City. And uh, I, I interviewed him there at as the beginnings of a book, but we soon realized that neither of us would have the time to devote to doing a book. I was working full time. Gary, of course, was, you know, traveling a lot, uh, uh, being a ball player. So we just, uh, we just dropped it. And uh, now fast forward 40 years, uh, I now have retired from being a sports reporter and I was driving to the library here in Martinez uh, where I live. And um, I thought, you know, I'd like to write a book, but what can I write about? And then suddenly it just came to me, like, how about the God Squad? I, I wonder if those guys are still around. So I found uh, Gary and I found Bob, and both of them agreed to uh, uh, be interviewed and give me input for the book. And uh, I also found Lowell Cohn and Henry Shulman, who covered the Giants uh, more when you were there, uh, Mark, and when Bob was there toward the end of uh, his career, uh, when Henry Shulman was writing for the Chronicle. And um, a word about that, the, the interesting thing to me is that um, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. Lowell Cohn is Jewish. Uh, Henry Shulman, uh, I'm almost certainly is Jewish. Uh, uh, and and uh, so it was very interesting for me to 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 hear their perspective. And when I when I entitled that chapter "Understanding Lowell Cohn," I think I understand him in part because we're both Jewish, mm -hmm. and I understand his uh, you know where he's coming from and, uh, in terms of religion and in terms of Jesus and and how that's all kind of foreign to him. So. Uh, and I must say, uh, both he and Henry were very obliging and and very helpful to me uh, in the interviews, and, and showed no uh, animosity really toward Christians or anything else. They, you know, and, and whether that's uh, the Lowell mellowed over the years, or or whether he's just uh, more fair-minded, I think than I than I imagined. Uh, 
it, it was really a good interview uh, with both of them. Yes, I'm not familiar with Lowell. I don't know if he was around when I was. Henry Schulman and I had many conversations. We had a very good relationship when I came back in 95 and 96, so I'm very mm-hmm. familiar with Henry. So, Bob, you are have been heavily involved in this book. It is your picture that's on the front of this book. You're doing an interview now uh, with Matt, with me, and, and my understanding is you'll be doing others. So the question is, why? Why did you decide, again, 45 years removed, I, 45 years removed from where it starts, 1978, I guess 35 years removed from your last time with the Giants, but why, why did you want to be involved in this book? Well, initially, I did not want to be involved with this book. <laughs> when, uh, when when Matt contacted me, I look back now and I feel uh, I feel very bad that I was not more cooperative. Um, and if you read the book, it's easy to see why. My experience with the Bay Area media, uh, in fact, my experience with media, whether it's Bay Area, Houston, New York, whatever, has not been a, a favorable relationship. So when uh, Matt first uh, contacted me, I was very wary, and and in fact, my wife was even more so than I was because she uh, went through that from a wife's perspective, seeing her husband ripped into media and seeing the stuff like that. So um, I really dragged my feet with Matt. Uh, he sent me a list of questions, and I kind of dilly-dallied around, and it just took me quite a while to really um, – be cooperative with Matt. I really felt bad looking back. And so, um, thankfully he didn't need me for most of his material because he'd still be writing and trying to get it out of me. But once he and I developed a relationship and especially once I got the book and saw, um, how honest, how fair, how diligent he was, uh, the research, um, I really feel like I had a relationship I could open up with this guy and I could trust my stories and myself with him. He's not looking for an angle to rip on me or anybody else. So once the book came out, I become a very big fan of Matt and his book and have felt like this is a book that needs to be out there for a number of reasons. So I was very, I've been much more, I think you talked to Matt, but I think I've been much more cooperative after the book than I was during the book, because again, I was, you know, I still have scars and um, hurts from some of the things that went on back then. So I did not jump on the, on the wagon very quickly at all. No, but Bob uh, has really uh, been a, a a cheerleader for the book uh, ever since. And I really appreciate it. Well, again, you know, as I read the book and saw, and was amazed. In fact, I think I told you, I think you deserve a Pulitzer for just the research alone that you did and go back. But I think it's, to me, one of the things that um, I think is a important part of that book is for people to read and see uh, what a poor job the Bay Area, not just the Bay Area, but journalists in general, oftentimes do in their research and covering. They just write stories they've heard about. Some of the stories that are made up about me, about the two different buses in San Francisco for Christians and non-Christians. I mean, those things are so hokey pokey, ridiculous, and easy to have done research and discover the truth about. And none of the writers took the time to do that. And so whether you're reading a sports page or a political page, 
people need to realize that so many of these guys have angles and stories they're trying to sell and the veracity of the truth of their story isn't always very high up on their list of priorities. I think that's one of the things that to me, I so appreciated whether intentionally or unintentionally during those years, the Bay area media did a very poor job as journalists doing their homework. Yeah. And I will come back to this, but it's interesting how they did such a poor job in their preparation and performance. And yet, criticized you ball players for what they saw as a fault in your preparation and performance. So in other words, they were essentially guilty in their own profession of what they were falsely accusing you men of being in your profession as major league baseball players. Yeah. Matt, you mentioned, yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I can remember uh, a, a real, um, I'm not sure what word I'd want to use, but a real moment is when I, saw reporters after a ball game interviewing me and other players and they would stick the microphone in your face, ask a question. And then they were looking out in the rest of the locker room or kind of looking at somebody else and not really paying attention at all to what you were saying because they had it on tape and they would go back and use it for however purpose they wanted. But it was just revelatory to me to see they didn't really care about me as a person or my answers. It was all about their story, and they're going to use whatever I said. And it happened many times in my career where they used my what I said to shape or make a story that wasn't really there. And it's just really disappointing. This I had to learn that that I was very naive that the reporters had an angle all too often. So for all the people that listen to this podcast that are young, fake news is nothing new. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, they've finally been. They've finally been uh, unearthed that that's what goes on. And that's, I think, one reason it so appealed to me with Matt was throughout our process, and especially after the book, there was no agenda except finding out the truth. And that was something that, that that's why I you know, have ended up feeling so safe and so willing to support him in this book because that's a novelty to me and it's something I didn't experience much during my career. Yes. Matt, you've mentioned already that ethnically you're Jewish, but you're a Jewish person who recognizes Jesus as the promised Messiah. So tell us your story. How how did you go from being, and I don't know if you were an Orthodox practicing Judaism Jew or not, but nonetheless, how did you go from a Jewish unbeliever to a Jewish believer? Well, uh, uh, first of all, I give all the, all the credit to God because it, it's miraculous, uh, Mark, how it happened. And, uh, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, I was raised in a secular Jewish home. Both my parents are Jewish, but uh, they did not raise me uh, religiously, did not attend synagogue. I was not bar mitzvah, um, but very culturally Jewish. I grew up in the uh, New York metropolitan area, no- northern New Jersey, uh, very culturally Jewish. And, uh, you know, uh, some of our relatives were, were more religious and, and uh uh, so I was in that culture, but, um, again, uh, didn't have any upbringing in terms of a knowledge of God. And I went off to, to college, uh, to Cornell, um, and then went on to journalism school, uh, for my master's degree at Syracuse university. And, uh, one winter I, uh, got very sick with mononucleosis and, uh, 
went into the student clinic where they have sort of rotating doctors. You get whoever you get. I happened to get a doctor named Indira Koshi, a woman from India. And um, she said, uh, after diagnosing me, she said, I don't usually do this, but I feel like I should share this with you. She said, did you know your name is in the Bible? I said, oh, really? So she brought out a little Gideon New Testament, and she showed me the Gospel of Matthew. And that kind of, you know, uh, got to me. I appreciated that. And she gave me the the little uh, Gideon to read. And I read that as I recovered. And there were the Psalms in the back of it. And I remember reading through those. and Very comforting. But once I got better, I kind of forgot the whole thing and went my own way, which uh, turned into a disaster for me personally. I uh, made some bad choices and ended up with some not very good friends. And uh, I won't go into all of that, but it, it certainly took me on a course away from God. But um, what happened along that line is uh, uh, one of these people uh, uh, who was a Christian had, had uh, you know, among this group, there, there were, I think, a couple of Christians, and, and one of them gave me a living Bible to read. So I began to read it, and I began to think, you know, this is, this is very interesting. Uh, I wonder if this stuff is true. Well, one night I was sitting at home with uh, a, a Jewish friend of mine named Carol, and we were talking about God. And I was saying, you know, Carol, I I can kind of believe in God because I said, for example, uh, sometimes things happen that are too coincidental. I, and for example, I said, sometimes I'll be thinking about somebody and the phone will ring and it'll be them. That was just my example, you know. And I said, but Carol, the thing I can't get over is how I, as a Jewish person, can believe in Jesus. It doesn't compute for me. Now, this is like 10 o'clock at night. Right after I said that, the phone rang. So I turned to Carol like, oh, you know, it's probably God calling or something, or <laughs> these circumstantial calls. And I pick up the phone, and the guy on the other end says, is Lisa there? And I... Lisa used to live in that house before I did, so I knew who she was, I, and she was Jewish, too. And I said, no, no, Lisa's not here. I thought he would hang up. He said, oh, I was calling because I wanted to get a book back that I loaned her. And I said, well, she's gone. Her books are gone. Sorry. And I thought he would hang up. He kept talking. He says, well, the re reason I was calling is I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, and I wanted to invite her to a, a lecture on campus by a a Messianic Jew, and I almost dropped the phone. I'm like, here I'm talking about coincidental phone calls and Jews believing in Jesus, and this guy calls me. <laughs> and I was like, so I said to Carol after I hung up, it was like, this is a call from God, Carol. I said, I don't know if you want to go to this lecture, but I'm going. So I went to the lecture. It was by a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and uh, a prominent Messianic Jewish scholar. And I went up to afterwards to try to talk to him, but everybody else was trying to talk to him. So there was a couple there, and we got to talking, and she's a Messianic Jew, and her husband's a Gentile believer, and they invited me to a home Bible study on Saturday. So I started going to their home Bible study, and then um, they told me they went to a church. I started to go to their church, and, and I could really 
feel God's presence when the pastor was speaking. The Holy Spirit was really moving. And one night, the church showed the movie A Thief in the Night, which you may remember, which is a story about the rapture. And uh, uh, it scared me to death. Mm. And I turned to <laughs> I, and they, I turned to my friend Mike, and I said, Mike, I don't understand all this, but if this is going to happen, I want to be on the right side. So, would you just pray with me? And I just asked God. I just told God, God, I want to be on your side mm-hmm. when all this happened. And I didn't understand. I didn't know a lot of theology, but from that day on, that was August sixth, nineteen seventy-eight. I just began to notice a change in me inside where I was, I had a peace that I never had before. And then I realized Jesus had come into my life that, that night when I had asked him. So that's how it happened. That's a wonderful story. Wow. That is a wow. wonderful story. Wow. wow. Now we're going to go to Bob. Now. We're going to go to Bob because <laughs> according, yep. so you get called up to San Francisco, your first big league call up at the end of the 76 season. You have outstanding seasons in 77 and 78, but in the book, I read you saying that essentially you came into baseball as fundamentally an atheist, but then the Lord also poured his grace out upon you in that same season, correct? 1978? What's your story? Well, gee whiz, let's see here. You know, yeah, I I grew up kind of um, in a non-Christian home as far as neither one of my parents were churchgoers. And uh, as I got into high school, I um, I won't go into all the details, but I ended up reading a lot of books by Clarence Darrow, who was a very renowned uh, lawyer in the uh, 20s and 30s. And most people would know him by his uh, the one of the Scopes Monkey Trial, where evolution was being taught in school with Williams Jennings Bryant being the big uh, proponent and all that kind of stuff. And so... Anyway, it got me thinking, and I got became an atheist, and I uh, used to love to debate Christians, and I found out that most Christians could not debate their faith. And so as I played minor league baseball, that continued, and I got the big leagues and um, saw some guys who got the baseball be- big leagues before I did and saw them, you know, going for drugs or chasing women or doing other things. They weren't satisfied to just being a big league ball player, and so – God just started doing things in my life. My grandmother's house uh, blew up off the foundation in 1976 and killed her. So I was the first person close to me that died. My dad suffered a heart attack in 1976, my first game in the big leagues. He did survive, but again, uh, death was something I'd never thought about being a young jock. And, and uh, so God was just doing things in my life. And then I got to play ball with Gary Lavelle and Gary was the first Christian I ever met that could answer my questions, could ask me questions I couldn't answer. And it was obvious that Gary didn't just know about God. He had a relationship with God. So that kind of started the wheels turning. He gave me a book by Hal Lindsey, Lake Great Planet Earth, where they talk that um, a lot of theologians believe that Christ will return in our lifetime. I knew if that happened and I didn't believe in God, I knew I wouldn't be heading north. I'd be heading south, which was the wrong direction. Um, so God doing things with my grandmother's death, my dad's heart attack, playing ball with Gary. And finally, in the spring training of 78, uh, where normally during chapel services, I would just get up and walk out because I didn't need that stuff. I got to where I was by myself and didn't need all that religious stuff. And so we were in the, uh, the locker room there in Phoenix Municipal Stadium. 
And uh, they're going to do the chapel right there in the main locker room. And so the way we were positioned, I had to walk right smack in front of the speaker, Jimmy Mamu, to get out down the tunnel to the ballpark. And I just kind of felt like, yeah, I just can't walk out in front of this guy, which is unusual because I had no problem walking out in front of anybody else during my short stint. But for some reason, I was locked there. And so Jimmy gave his testimony, talked about him getting into drugs, being a musician, very, very successful. Married to a woman who ended up being a um, topless dancer in the Bay Area. She became quite famous, I think, in the 70s, 60s or 70s of Tara. She did live sex acts on stage with snakes and different things, and this mm. became quite a deal. And ended up actually becoming a prostitute while married to Jimmy. Wow. Now, he's telling us this stuff, and I'm just going, oh, my gosh, if my wife was a prostitute, I should not be sharing it with a locker room full of guys. I wouldn't want anybody to know that. So it really hit me that he had something in his relationship with God that I didn't have. So it made an impact, but not enough for me to do anything. So the season starts, and early that year, um, and I'm kind of, I know some of my recollection of where exactly we were but we were in san diego sometime and jimmy mamu was the speaker again for chapel so i listened to him again he gave his testimony and at that point i told gary lavelle that you know gary and he and i gary and i've been doing a lot of talking a lot of debating and about the book and about different things and i said gary i want you to would you show me or would you help me learn the bible study the bible because if the bible is true that's one thing I do is I want to know the truth. And in fact, on all my years of a quote unquote atheist, what drove me was I always wanted to know the truth. And unfortunately, up until that time, the Christians that I had been in contact with through the minor league didn't know the truth well enough to explain it to me. So um later on still early in the season we went into and i can't remember if it was st louis or pittsburgh or where it was i, I get both those mixed up for different reasons but i lay in bed one night and i just prayed to god i said god um i don't know if you're real i don't know if you're listening to me i believe that i'm talking to the ceiling that no one's there but God, if you are real, if you are who Jimmy Mamou said you were, if you are who Gary Lavelle's tell me, then I know I need you as my Lord and Savior. I want you as my Lord and Savior. Um, so I'm asking you to come in and, and reveal yourself to me. And I prayed that way for probably six or seven minutes out loud. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have a roommate uh, uh, thinking I was going crazy. <laughs> so I was by myself. And when I got done praying... The only way I could explain it was I came face to face with the living God and the holiness of God and the sinfulness of Bob Nipper. And I broke down. And I just was racked with sobs, big body racking sobs. And to put that in perspective, you know, in high school, I played football, offense and defense. I played basketball. I played baseball. I ran track. And it's an unknown thing in sports or not an unknown thing, but it's a known thing. You don't show your enemy tears. You don't show any evidence of pain. You you just suck it up and do what you're supposed to do. So for me to be 23 or four years old in my hotel room, just bawling like a baby because of the holiness of God, he allowed me to somehow experience that spirit spiritually just broke me and broke me as a young, um, a young athlete thinking he was on top of the world. And so 
uh, yeah, he came into my life and I mean, it was an instantaneous change. Changes were in my life. And, um, so the relationship started, um, it was a process of two or three years and, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my story in a nutshell, a big nutshell. I'm, gl- I'm glad you said something that I read in the book because I, I had jotted it down. In the book, it's this way. You, you are speaking uh, to Matt in the interview. I explain it as me coming face-to-face with the sinfulness of Bob Nepper and the holiness of God, which you said just in a little different wording. That, that, is, that is, some of us maybe have experienced it more profoundly than others, but that's really what it's all about, right? Recognizing who God is, recognizing who we are, recognizing what Jesus Christ has done to reconcile sinful us with a thrice holy God. So I'm glad that you brought that up here. Well, and, you know, for me, too, coming from a completely non-church background, I mean, I never saw a Bible in our house. So if my mom and dad had one, I don't know where it was or it never, it never came out. And so I had no biblical background as far as, you know, any stories of Bible. I had certainly knew no doctrine, no theology. Um, and so for me, it wasn't a, um, intellectual understanding of the gospel. It was a complete spiritual confrontation, which I wouldn't even, you know, been able to understand then of what was going on. I just knew I was in the presence of somebody or something that was righteously holy. Um, and I was just, you know, awash with my guilt of being so foolishly sinful. And so it was almost like a, instead of an intellectual understanding, for me, it was a definite spiritual experience that I experienced the presence of God in a way that I'd never even heard of. It was, again, it wasn't an educational, it wasn't intellectual. It was a spiritual confrontation. Um, and that's one of those things that, that because of that, and through my later years of struggles and persecution, you could not take that away from me. It wasn't something I read and decided to believe in. It was something very real at the deepest inner core of my being. And so no matter what happens in my life, that's the rock of my faith, you know, kind of like, and I don't want to use this, this kind of a rejection, kind of like Moses with the burning bush. You come in the presence of God, that marks you for the rest of your life. Amen. That is, that is great to hear from both of you because I want to transition into the book. But I don't think that if we hadn't had this conversation to this point, the book would not be... Um, understood as well as it should by myself and by the people that listen to this podcast. Before we get into the book, however, I do want to say this. People that are listening, many of them are big baseball fans. Bob, they're going to be familiar with with your career. Those who aren't are going to go look it up and say, man, he was a good Major League Baseball pitcher. No doubt you were. But I want to point this out because most people don't look at minor league numbers. In 1974, in Fresno, you went 20-5. and five. You pitched 239 innings, 247 strikeouts, and 16 complete games. 
I will go out on a limb right here and say that will never happen again in minor league baseball. Probably hasn't happened very often anyway. It will never. Those numbers are absolutely remarkable. They're jaw-dropping, even for somebody who went through that. That's just unbelievable. So I don't want people to miss that because they they often go past the minor league stats. Those are just unbelievable numbers. But now let's get to the book. Let's so I have to interrupt the interview right now for a few reasons. First, I want to follow up on what I just said about Bob Nepper's season in 1974. I am very confident it will never happen again in minor league baseball, but I think that's an understatement. I can, I would say sadly, I can predict that we may not see those kind of numbers again, at least in our lifetime, in major league baseball. Last year, 2023, only five Major League Baseball pitchers went past 200 innings. The top, 216 innings. Bob Nepper in 1974 in Fresno, 239 innings. Last year in Major League Baseball, two pitchers had three complete games on the season. Six pitchers had two complete games. Nobody else had more than one. Last year in Major League Baseball, there were a total of 34 complete games. Bob Nepper, Fresno, 1974, 16 complete games. If you're a baseball fan, you can understand how phenomenal that season was. I also needed to pause right now because these two men were extremely generous with their time. And there is a lot more to this interview. So part two of this interview will take place next week in the bullpen, and we will get into the book that Matt wrote and that Bob is such an instrumental part of. But also this, and I hope you caught this as well. As we listen to those two men talk about how our good and gracious Lord saved them, one of them a secular Jew, the other a professing atheist, It is a wonderfully encouraging and God-glorifying thing to listen to. But a couple of things struck me as well. First, it is a clear demonstration that our Lord moves in mysterious ways. He moves in amazing ways. And He is not constrained in the means He uses to save sinners. Also note this, that for both of these men and there are a multitude of others who would also say the same thing, it was the fear of the wrath and judgment of God that prompted them to search for truth and then ultimately come to know the one who is truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet sadly, and from my perspective inexcusably, so many Christians fear scaring, I put that in quotes that you can't see, So many Christians fear scaring rebellious sinners away from Jesus by warning them that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.